really interesting. We're going to talk about how to end wars. Uh, how to end wars. The three types of war that uh, James talks about here. And then three ways that James gives us to get out of these wars. So we're going to talk about the three types of wars. Being at war with each other. Being at war with ourselves. And being at war with God. And then uh, uh, James' admonition. And uh, how he tells us to get out of basically uh, find peace in our life and get out of wars is uh, to number one is to submit to God. Number two, draw near to him. And number three, humble yourself before God. But uh, that's a little synopsis. But we're going to get into the word. James chapter four, verse number one. It says, from whence or from what direction come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Everybody say, wow. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art a doer of, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou? that judgest another. Jesus, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for all your blessings and your favor. Pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us, cause us to be edified and strengthened by your word. Thank you for that. We give you glory for it in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to give some uh, assignments of looking up particular scriptures in the word of God. Uh, but before uh, we do, I want to uh, let you know that uh, there is... A, uh, a couple of young people in our church that have made the decision to join together in matrimony. And uh, so we're going to pray for and encourage and love Brother Jeffrey and Sister Jessica as they've made a decision and they're committed to engagement. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And, amen. And we love these young people and we're praying and uh, encouraging them. Everybody said amen. Amen. So if you have your Bible, kind of put it up on your chest or on your shoulder so I can see it. And uh, I'm going to give you assignments. That, if you're, that is if you're willing to read, if, you, if you're willing to read out loud. So hold your Bibles up there because I'm going to go around the room and give you assignments. And you'll look it up, put your finger in there, and be waiting for me uh, when we get to that passage of Scripture. I believe Sister Sarah may try to help us with verses on the board as well. Uh, first one, Sister Becky, Psalms 133, verse 1. That was a passage that we read on Sunday. Uh, Brother Rick, um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Who else? Brother Ben. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. Brother Juan, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. So you got a little longer of a reading. Matthew 18. Verses 15 through 19. Sean, that's your Bible. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. All right. Uh, let's see here. Let me see here. I, need, I have a couple more that I need. All right. Uh, who else? Uh, Brother Charlie, Romans chapter 7, verse 4. And uh, Brother Rudy, Galatians 5.17. Uh, who else? Brother Chris, 
uh, Romans 8, 7 and Romans 8, 6. We'll read the second one first, the, 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 the later verse 7 first, and then we'll read verse 6. Uh, let me see here. Everybody's getting nervous as the number of scriptures grows. Uh, somebody else, one more. Uh, Brother Jeffrey, 1 Timothy 3 and 6. Anyone else? Anyone else? Sister, uh, Ephesians 4, 27. Two more verses. Dos más. All right, Ben. Psalms 34 and 18. The final one. Who wants the final one? Who wants the last one? Who wants to just bring the service out with a bang, sister? Isaiah 32 and 17. All right. This is Bible study tonight, okay? Yes. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Matthew 15. I'm sorry, 18 verses 15 through 19. All right. Okay. <clears throat> we're talking about how, how to end wars. And uh, we're not necessarily talking specifically about trying to end wars between nations or trying to bring an end to the war on terror. Uh, but war is a fact of life. You can go back in history as far as you can, as far as you can look, and you recognize that war is a fact of life. There are battles. There have been the world wars. There have been civil wars within nations. And we see the war on terror, even the war on drugs. Uh, but uh, wars of one kind or another are at every level of life. And in James uh, chapter number 4, we see that there are wars, three specific wars that are talked about. Uh, and we're going to talk about these three wars and how to stop them. As I mentioned, the first one is being at war with each other. A person being at war with another person. And then the second one is being at war with ourselves. Having strife or warfare with ourselves. And the third one is being at war with God. And I believe if you pay attention, you'll notice that they connect with one another. The reason people are at war with each other is because somewhere they're they're at war with themselves. And the reason they're at war with themselves is because somewhere they're at war with God. And so uh, all of these things can be remedied by doing what the book of James tells us to do. So we're going to talk specifically about that. We're going to start by talking about being at war with each other, starting with verse 1. From whence come wars and fighting among you? Where do these wars among you come from? And then uh, verse 11, it says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. If thou judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? So you see here the idea of being at war or strife between brothers and sisters. Psalms chapter 133 and verse 1 gives us a picture of the way things ought to be. Psalms 133 and 1, sister. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This is God's plan, that we be unified together, that there not be strife and envying and division amongst us. But God's plan is that we dwell in unity, and it's good, and it's pleasant. Everybody say just pleasant. Pleasant. That's just a nice word, isn't it? And uh, I remember uh, uh, I lived right next to the church growing up, and the church was on Pleasant Lane. Pleasant Lane. And that was a, uh, just a, uh, uh, a word that, that, that talks of uh, peace and niceness and everything just being beautiful, kind of like the weather out tonight. It's pleasant, isn't it? Everybody say, thank God for SoCal. Brother Omar Jolly, my friend, uh, he's, uh, you remember Brother Jolly that's preached here. He's preaching uh, youth camp this week in Kentucky, and it's 108 degrees today. So thank God for SoCal. That's with humidity on top of that. So it's pleasant for us to dwell together in unity, and this is God's plan. And we should dwell together in harmony, but often we do not. And uh, we see where there are wars in Scripture between individuals, like between Lot and Abraham, between Absalom and David, and even the disciples, when they warred with each other or they were fighting over who would be the greatest in the kingdom, it brought uh, an unpleasant experience to the Lord. And uh, if you study through the epistles and the book of Acts, you discover that in the early churches there were disagreements. 
and uh, there were issues and uh, problems between people in the early church, in the, in the church in Corinth. Uh, they would compete with one another in public meetings, and there were believers that were suing one another in public court. So there was divisions in the early church in Corinth. And then in the Galatian church, uh, the Bible says that they were biting and devouring one another, that God's people were nipping at each other. And uh, then in Ephesus, they were instructed to cultivate spiritual unity, which lets us know that there were some problems in Ephesus. And then in the church in Philippi, which is a uh, a church that in a lot of ways is kind of the model church, but there were two women who could not get along that are addressed in, uh, 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 in the writings to the church at Philippi. But here's one thing to also remember about this New Testament church is the New Testament church didn't have the New Testament. So, so uh, uh, they, they had only the Old Testament, so they, didn't, they weren't blessed with the epistles that we're blessed with. The writings from the apostles instructing people how to live properly as Christians. So, that, that being said, some of the issues and problems in the New Testament church should not be in life church. Because we have epistles that teach us how to sidestep those kinds of problems. Amen? So, in the book of James itself, this is through the entirety of the book, not just in the portion that we read. James mentions different kinds of disagreements in the church among saints. In chapter 2, he talks about class wars or wars between the rich and the poor. Uh, who's getting more respect? Who's, uh, uh, are, are, is one looking down on the other? In uh, chapter 5, it talks about employment wars between the laborer and uh, the, the uh, employer. And uh, then in chapters 1 and 3, it addresses fights that happen in the church. Because what we see, if you study the book of James, you discover that a lot of the arguments that James is addressing within the church is people in war with each other over positions in the church. Many wanted to be teachers and uh, leaders. And so as a result of this kind of trying to get to the top of the heap, uh, rather than Bible study being something that edified the church, it became a source of strife and arguments because everybody wanted to prove themselves as being a teacher and a leader. And then there were personal wars also in the church. Saints were speaking evil of one another. We see this addressed in a number of places. And they were judging one another, which is, like we talked about a few weeks ago, the wrong use of the tongue is using our tongue to judge or speak evil or speak negatively about our brothers and sisters. This is not healthy within a church. It's a fire that you can light it uh, and you can say, oh, I'm sorry I lit that, but it still burns. It still burns on. And then uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Who had that verse? Ephesians 4 and 15. What does it say? So this kind of gives us an instruction from that uh, the truth in the body of Christ is to be spoken in love. Love always has to be the environment or the surrounding to, uh, uh, to our conversation and our relationships and our fellowship with one another. We are not to speak evil of one another in a spirit of rivalry or criticism. I say that again. We're not to speak evil of one another out of a spirit of rivalry. Who's the smartest? Who's the best? Who's going to be the top of the stack? Who's the most anointed? Or criticizing one another. Now, if something happens and uh, the truth you're not making up a lie, but it's the truth. It's the truth about a brother or sister, but it's harmful to them. Then we should cover it in love and not repeat it. First Peter chapter four, verse eight. What does it say? First Peter chapter number four and verse eight. Yes, I think so. Have fervent charity amongst yourself, for charity covereth a multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean we cover things up. But what it means is we don't repeat and spread things, but we handle it in love. The Bible gives us some instructions about what to do if we have a brother or a sister that sinned. And uh, let's read those instructions, uh, Brother Juan, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 19. Matthew 18, verse 15.
Okay, let's stop there. Go, okay, if your brother sins against you, or if you know a brother that has sinned, go and confront him about his fault between you and him alone. Okay, go ahead. If, now there's no guarantee, but if your brother hears you, then that brother, you have, have gained this brother. Verse 16. So then if uh, the sin continues and the sin uh, persists, then go with a uh, two or three more. And in the uh, uh, structure of the church, uh, it's probably good to get a church leader that would go with you in this type of a confrontation. Okay, read verse 17. Okay, so we see the process of uh, where, where the Bible tells us how to deal with someone that has sinned or trespassed. It's, uh, uh, the first step is we go to him personally and try to win him back, try to help that person personally. But what is human nature? We go to somebody else to talk about this person's problem. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to go to that person personally and talk to them. If that doesn't work, then maybe go to them with another brother, sister, uh, church leader. Say, but this is second step, all right? Everybody got that? Second step and say, okay, here is the issue. We want to pray with you about this. If that doesn't work, then it, beco- it comes before the church. If that doesn't work, then uh, um, this is the extreme case of someone in rebellion against God and against the authority of the church then it's uh, disfellowshipping. But the point is, is operating in love is the first step. If a brother has sinned, we should go to him personally and privately and try to win him back. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Okay. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, if a man stumbles, if a woman sins, ye which are spiritual... Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Get that in the spirit of meekness. Not in the spirit of haughtiness, not in the spirit of judgment, not in the spirit of superiority, but in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That's really important when you're helping someone with sin is to remember that we're all frail human beings and we all have the propensity and the potential to sin, and with all, what measure we mete out judgment, that's the measure that's going to be meted out to us. We're going to need mercy sometime, so we've got to show mercy. Everybody said amen. So if we handle things properly and scripturally, it will cut down on a lot of problems in the church because what happens is, is rather than us following the scriptural format, we begin to talk to other people about it, and it's what we call gossip. Gossip is speaking to someone other than the person Speaking to someone else about another person, all right? Uh, unless you're talking to a spiritual leader and asking for their help. But sometimes I've found this out. Even prayer requests can become gossip. Amen. And so if you, if you see a brother or sister that's in sin, what good does it do to go to someone else and say, this person has a problem? Because it creates a culture within a church where gossip happens, where wars happen, where division takes place. But if you practice the scriptural way, it's a little challenging. It takes moral fortitude or guts, but it's the right way to do it. And God honors it if you do it in the right spirit, in the spirit of meekness. Can I get an amen? So... We're not saying that Christians should not discern when we say that Christians should not judge, should not be able to discern things. But we must not act like God in passing judgment. Remember, you get this now, you never know all the facts in a case. And oftentimes we cast judgment on something only knowing one side of the story or one quarter of the story or one nickel of the story. And you never know the motives that are at work in men's hearts. I heard somebody say this one time. 
And uh, I've caught myself doing this, and I've had to pull back and check myself. And that is, someone warned me and said, never judge a person's motives, because you don't know. Don't judge a person's motives for why they're doing what they're doing, because you don't really know. There is a righteous judge that knows. There is a God that knows. The Bible says in verse 12, chapter 4, that we read, There is one lawgiver. He's able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? God doesn't need us to step into that seat. He'll take care of it. Amen? He will handle it. And it's dangerous and harmful to judge a man's motives. So to speak evil of or to judge a brother on partial evidence, and especially... If there are unkind motives, is a sin against him and against God. Because God is the judge. He's a patient judge. He's an understanding judge. We can leave the matter with him. Everybody say amen. amen. And, and ultimately, if we are at war with one another as the body of Christ, it's not a very good witness to the world. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, because of the love that you have for one another. And uh, maybe you've heard examples or seen examples of church problems or problems within a family, within a church, becoming so overblown and exacerbated to the point that outsiders get a whiff of it, and it gives them a bad taste of Christianity. It's a bad witness to the world. And so we should not be war with one against another. So why are we? Why does this happen in churches in the body of Christ, within Christians, why is there war one against the other? And I believe James answers this by explaining the second war that rages, and this is at war with ourselves. Let me read verses 1 through 3. He says, Where's coming this war and fighting from? From whence is it coming among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. Catch this right now. Where is the war... The, the, the struggles, the stress, the strife, the battles among you coming from, it's coming from within. From the lust that war in your members. It's not talking about in the church members. It's talking about in your members, within you. Verse tw- 2, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So it talks here about the war in our hearts that helps to cause war in the church. In chapter 3, we talked about envying and strife. Now, let me make sure that you get this and understand this. The essence or the core of sin is selfishness. Everybody say selfishness. So you take sin down to its core. What is it? Selfishness. So that's why Eve lied, or Eve ate of the tree. She was selfish. She wanted to take it. That's why Abraham lied about his sister, his wife being his sister. He wanted to protect himself. That's why Achan took the Babylonian garment and the bars of gold, because he was selfish. And the essence of sin is selfish. And, and I, I've seen before, maybe you've seen, maybe not, But sometimes we veil our spiritual arguments or quarrels with one another under the guise of spirituality. Our arguments we put under a covering of spirituality. And uh, you look in the Word of God, um, there was a, a, a time when Miriam and Aaron, who were the brother and sister of Moses, complained against Moses' wife. But the real issue was they were envious of Moses' authority. Look in Numbers chapter 12. You can read that passage for yourself. And, uh, and James and John, remember at one point they created problems because they said to Jesus, we want to be on your right hand and left hand on these special thrones when you come into your kingdom. But the reality was it wasn't about a spiritual thing down the road. They actually wanted recognition today. And selfish desire always brings God's chastening and it produces division. And oftentimes when you see division, problems, arguments, wars, difficulties, particularly in the body of Christ, 
at the core of it is selfishness. And it halts the kingdom of God. It slows the church down. Miriam's sin halted Israel's progress for an entire week. And selfish desires are a dangerous thing because they lead to wrong actions. Notice what it says, verse 1. They come from your lust that war in your members. What, it, what does it produce? You kill, you desire to have, you fight, and you war. So killings and fighting and warring are some of the actions that are produced from selfish desires. So selfish desires are a dangerous thing. I think all of us, at one point in our life or another, have to deal with envy and have to deal with selfishness. And we have to recognize that and we have to uh, be able to note what's at work behind the curtain. Amen? What's behind the curtain? And in James chapter 3, it says, you could even, selfish desires may even lead you to pray the wrong way. Selfish desires can even lead you to pray the wrong way. You can pray the wrong way. That's what the Bible says. You ask, but you ask amiss. You're praying the wrong way. Why are you praying the wrong way? Because you're praying with the wrong motives. And when people pray with the wrong motives, then uh, it's the wrong type of praying. And when praying is wrong, your entire Christian life suffers when your praying is wrong. Because the purpose of prayer, everybody get this point, the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven. But the purpose of prayer is to get God's will done on the earth. Not to get what we want done. Not to force or impose our will on something. And when we pray through our lusts and through our own desires or through our selfishness, what does it do? It can even create divisions by what happens inside of us. See, commandment number 10 of the Ten Commandments. Anybody know what the Tenth Commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. Now, to be honest with you, when I look at the Ten Commandments, when I get to number 10, thou shalt not covet, it almost seems like a little tag on. Because compared to some of the others, it's pretty light. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, it's not that bad. If I wish I had my neighbor's Range Rover, or if I wish I lived in that house up in the hills. It's not, why is it one of the Ten Commandments? It seems light and harmless. But listen to me. Violating commandment number 10 can make you break all the other nine. Yes. Covetousness can lead to theft. Covetousness can lead to lying. Covetousness can lead to murder. Covetousness can lead to adultery. Are you listening to me right now? That if you learn not to be selfish and not to covet, a lot of the other laws would take care of themselves. Selfish living and selfish praying always leads to war. And if there's war on the inside, there will ultimately be war on the outside. So James is saying, here's the problem. Here's why there's war. Because there's some selfishness. There's some self-centeredness, there's some lust, there's some covetousness on the inside of you, not just for stuff, but for positions and recognition and uh, so on and so forth. These things working in you are creating a war within you and the problems inside of you, but it's creating problems outside of you as well. Because people who are at war with themselves because of selfish desires will be unhappy. People who have selfish desire and lust rampant in their spirit. Please understand when I say lust, I'm not just talking about sexual lust, but I'm talking about desire for things or recognition. This desire inside of a person, this uh, passion for recognition, this kind of thing is the very thing that keeps a person unhappy and they never really in, fully enjoy life because instead of being thankful for what they have they complain about what they don't have and they're not happy there's a war going on in the inside amen and they can't get along with other people because they are always envying others it's a war on the inside and they're looking for something magical to come along and improve their life change their life for the better but the real problem is within their own hearts. The war is within. And nothing that changes on the outside is going to fix what's on the inside. 
got to deal with the inside first. Can I get an amen? Why is there war within the church? Because there's war within people's hearts. If there wasn't lust, if there wasn't covetousness, if there wasn't envying in hearts of people, then there wouldn't be wars within the church amongst people. Can I get an amen? Man, I wish I could tell you. I wish I could explain to you. I wish I could make it clear to you. But every church problem, every difficulty, every stress within a church, there's always these side tangles and so forth, and even problems within families. Oftentimes, if you break it right on down, there's problems on the inside. It's problems in the heart. It's desire. It's lust. It's covetousness that produce a lack of thankfulness and gratefulness with what we have that produces this lust and desire in us that creates problem. Instead of being thankful, we complain. Amen. And we're looking for something to come change, make us happy. Well, if I could get a new car, if I uh, get this recognition, if somebody would pay attention to me, da-da-da-da-da, and so on and so forth. But the reality is it's never going to fix it because it's an inside job, and it has to be fixed on the inside. Praise the Lord. Amen. And prayer can be used as a cloak to hide our true desires. And there are some people who have bad feelings towards someone, and they say, but I prayed about it. And that can be an excuse because instead of seeking God's will, we try to tell God what we need Him to do or what we want Him to do, and then we get mad when He doesn't do what we tell Him to do. All right? Instead of saying, God, let me find your will. Let me find your will. We're like, God, do this. And when God doesn't obey us, we get mad at God. Uh huh. There's people that are angry with God. And that's at the core of the problem. Many church problems and many family problems could be solved if people would look into their own hearts and see the battle that's raging there. The battle that's raging in the heart is going to produce a battle on the outside. And the strife on the outside is a product of strife on the inside at war with ourselves. But here we go. As we take the next step, the war on the outside is a product of the war on the inside. And the war on the inside is a product of us being at war with God. James chapter 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself on the side of the Lord, he shall lift you up. So the root cause of every war, whether internal or external, is rebellion against God. As we preach Sunday, being in disagreement with God. Because if we're in agreement with God, then there's going to be peace in our relationship with God. Then there's going to be peace in our heart because there's not a battle of lusts or selfish desires on the inside. And then there's going to be peace in our relationships with other people. And so you've got to get all the way back to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not that I don't like this person or their personality gets against me or rubs me the wrong way. The root of the problem is maybe there's a problem in me. And that's not even the tip of the root because the tip of the root goes all the way back to the idea that somewhere I am at war with God because if I can get at peace with God, then peace is going to reign in my heart and peace is going to reign in my relationships. Praise God. When God created the earth, there was complete harmony. Enter stage right, sin. When sin entered, harmony turned into conflict. Sin is lawlessness or rebellion against God. And it is the source or the core cause of stress and conflict. How can a believer 
find himself at war with God? This is the good question because, you know, I'm a believer. I love God. I want to serve God. But this passage of Scripture lets us know that there are times when we as believers can find ourselves at war or enmity with God. We want to declare war against the devil. But there are ways, the Bible says, that we can declare war against God. Anybody interested in making sure you're not declaring war against God? Because guess what? It's a battle you can't win. I said Sunday, you can't fight City Hall. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Don't fight a war against God. So how can I be sure not to get in a war with God? The way that I declare war with God, here, here, I'll say it this way. The way that you declare war with God is by being friendly with God's enemies. All right, listen to me right now. The way you declare war with God is by being friendly with God's enemies. Do you remember, uh, I believe it was, I believe they call it the Bush Doctrine, George uh, W. Bush, which was basically this. In this war on terror, we're not just going after terrorists. You're not our enemy just if you're a terrorist. But you are our enemy if you aid and abet the terrorists. This was the Bush Doctrine. The idea is, if you're a friend of our enemies, then you have become our enemy. Because you're aiding them in this kind of unique warfare. We can't afford to have you be friends with our enemies. And this is the way that we declare war with God, is by being friends with the enemies of God. And here, James chapter 4, he mentions the enemies of God that we cannot fraternize with if we want to be at peace with God. I want peace with God so that I can have peace in my heart and peace in my relationships. And it starts, and it starts out by making sure that I'm not friends with the enemies of God. The first one, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, we'll look at those words. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoso therefore be a friend of, of the world is the enemy of God. So if you're a friend of the world, you then by extension become an enemy of God. So what is the world that we're not to be friendly with? That is the human society that's apart from God. Our world system and our society is anti-God. It's against God. The Bible says Abraham was a friend of God, but Lot was the enemy of God. And uh, so if we want to ensure that we don't become friends with the world, one thing that maybe we can look at is how Christians get involved with the world, how Christians become friends with the world. It usually doesn't happen instantaneously. It usually doesn't happen overnight. But Christians become friends with the world gradually. And it starts out with this friendship. And this friendship with the world results in being spotted by the world. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion undefiled is this. Uh, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And to keep thyselves unspotted from the world. To keep yourself unspotted. What does it mean to be spotted by the world? It means letting areas of our life be changed to meet the approval of the world. You guys with me? I don't, I'm afraid I'm losing some of you here. Being spotted by the world means letting our lives, areas of our lives, be changed until it receives and obtains the approval of the world. And so friendship with the world leads to loving the world, which eventually leads to conforming to the world. Who's got Romans 12:2? Romans 12:2. Can anybody quote it? Be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So when we're a friend with the world, eventually we become spotted by the world, and then eventually we become conformed to the world, and the sad final end result is that we are condemned with the world. And so friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. And throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, friendship with the world is always associated with adultery. So if you can go back to verse, verse number 4, James 4, 4. Uh, the different prophets like Jeremiah, 
and uh, in the Old Testament and Ezekiel and Hosea used the phraseology of spiritual adultery to describe friendship with the world and used it to rebuke Judah for her sins. What was spiritual adultery in the Old Testament? Spiritual adultery was adopting sinful, the sinful ways of other nations and worshiping their gods. Whenever the Hebrew people or the Judean people would uh, adopt the cultural uh, beliefs and worship the gods of the other nations, it was called spiritual adultery. Why? Because, in essence, they were to be married with God. They were God's bride, in essence. And whenever they were cheating on God by embracing the way of the world around them, it was seen as spiritual adultery. That's why in verse 4 here, uh, James calls them adulterers and adulteresses who are friends with the world and wondering why they're at war with God. Why am I at war with God? Well, you can't be a friend of the world without finding yourself at war with God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, uh, somebody have that one. I don't know if, if I gave that one out, Brother uh, Charlie. 7, 4 of Romans. So God's plan is that we would be married to Jesus Christ. Now I know that's maybe kind of a weird concept. Uh, that doesn't mean individually. That means us as a body of Christ are married to Jesus Christ. So don't think anything crazy or weird about that. That we as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, is married to Jesus Christ. And when we begin to flirt with, or fall in love, become friends with, conform to this world, we're cheating on our husband. That's, we're adulterers or adulteresses. And so that's why uh, if, if you want to be at peace with God, you can't be a friend with the world because friendship with the world is enmity or warfare with God. So the world is an enemy with God. And if we're friends with the world, we cannot be a friend of God. Everybody got that? Say amen. So the second enemy of God that we need to make sure we're not friends with, number two, is the flesh. Everybody say the flesh. First of all, it's the world, the world system. Secondly, it's the flesh. Verse 1 says, From whence come these wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members, the lust of the flesh. And then verse 5 says, Do you think... That the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So what is the flesh? Now, I want to make sure you guys get this because some people think the flesh is just referring to your body. But it's not. Because your body's actually neutral. Otherwise, the scripture wouldn't say, let your members be yielded to bring glory to God. Your flesh can bring glory to God when you yield it to God's spirit. Right? Uh, your, your, your body, your members, your members, your body. But if your body is yielded to this thing called the flesh, then it uh, doesn't bring glory to God, but rather it serves sin. So the flesh is not the body, but the flesh is that old nature that we inherited from Adam, that old nature that's prone to sin. And when we repented and gave our lives to the Lord, we receive a new nature within but the old nature is not removed and it's not reformed. That's why there is a battle within. So there's two natures living in you. Everybody got this? Two natures. There's the flesh and there is that new nature that's given to us by Christ Jesus. When we give our life to Him, the new nature. So there's war. The Bible talks about the war of the flesh and the spirit, the battle carnality and spirituality, the battle that happens inside. This is a battle within someone because that old nature is still in there. Galatians 5.17, who has that? All right. They're contrary one to the other. You're not able to do the things that you want to do because there is this battle that goes on on the inside. And I want, I want you to understand that you can be a believer and you can live for the flesh, but it grieves the Holy Spirit 
of God. It grieves the Spirit of God. I want to look at verse 5 because it's a little confusing there. Uh, James 4 and 5. James chapter 4, verse 5. It says, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. God's Spirit, or the Spirit that dwells in us, lusteth to envy. That's kind of a hard one to, to understand. But if you think about it, when you've got a husband and a wife and they're joined together in marriage, there is a holy, loving jealousy that ought to be in place. It's healthy, right? You say, well, jealousy's bad. Well, I think it's healthy that I don't want my wife flirting with other guys. That's a holy, loving jealousy. Everybody got what I'm saying there? And so... Uh, the reality is the spirit within jealously guards our relationship with God and is grieved when we sin against God's love. So when we live to please the old nature, we are declaring war with God. When we decide that uh, even though we've been born again, we want to allow the lust of the flesh to direct our life and to influence our decisions, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And it puts us at war with God. So, if, see, these are the three enemies. The three enemies are the, the, the flesh, the world, and the devil. In James, right, chapter 4, it talks about the three enemies. It's our flesh we're fighting. It's the world that's an enemy of God. And it's the devil that's an enemy of God. If we agree or become friends with these three, it's hard for us to have peace with God. And so we, as we said at the beginning, we can't be friends with this world system. And fall in love with this world's belief system. And we can't allow the lust of the flesh to direct our life. Brother Chris, Romans 8, verse 7. When we allow the flesh to control our minds, we lose the blessing of fellowship with God. Man, I tell you one thing. That's one thing that I can't do without is my relationship and fellowship with God. If I allow my body to submit and follow the lust of the flesh, it affects negatively my fellowship and relationship with God. You know, and, and let me do a little side note here. The, we we uh, said earlier in our study that uh, the Bible says that there will be people in the last days who who come to the Lord, say, Lord, we... Cast out evil spirits using your name. Sick people were healed using your name. We did miracles using your name. And the Lord's going to say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Think about it. There are going to be people who have gifts with no relationship because of their lifestyle. You guys with me right now? Workers of iniquity, that's lifestyle. Depart from me. I never knew you. No fellowship. We cast out spirits in your name. We did mighty works in your name. Gifts. So there's going to be people, and there are people, with gifts, but no relationship because of their lifestyle. Amen. In the last days. And so what's important is that we don't follow the lust of the flesh and let the lust of the flesh, because I'm going to tell you right now, you care to know that there are certain pulpits in churches where men get up and eloquently preach, flowing in a gifting, but their life does not surrender to God's will and God's word. They've got secret hidden sins in their life. The fact is someday they're going to stand in judgment and their relationship with God is fractured and they've learned how to flow on their skill and the residue of an anointing that once was there. But if you want God's fresh anointing in your life, if you want your relationship with God to be intact, you can't obey and follow the lust of the flesh. The Bible's real clear. Those that do mind the flesh do follow after the things of the flesh. Those that do mind the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Amen. And that we walk in the Spirit. God's plan is for us to walk in the Spirit. So if we surrender to the lust of the flesh and do the things we know we're not supposed to, 
do the things the Word teaches against, and we allow the lust of the flesh to control our lives, it affects our fellowship and relationship with God. And then uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now let me make sure you guys got this. I'm trying to get this across to all of us. I'm trying to get it across to myself. I'm going to be doing it from now to the rapture. Being spiritually minded is not about willpower. It's not about manipulating and forcing your mind to think certain thoughts. It's about walking with God. And the only way you can walk with God is to have a relationship with God. The only way you can have a relationship with God is to spend time with God. And if time with God is not a priority in your life, you may know tons of Bible scriptures, but you're not walking with God, and you're not going to walk after the Spirit, and you're not going to have a relationship with God. You're going to be carnally minded. Yeah, you can know the Bible from cover to cover and still be carnally minded. You can go to church every Sunday and still be carnally minded. The only way you can be spiritually minded is to walk with God. Everybody say walk. Walk with God. The idea of walking, walking with God, is about steps. Steps. It's not about, walking with God is not about somehow I bounce from here to here and I have an experience here in communion and fellowship with God. And then three weeks later, another powerful experience. Boom, boom, boom. I'm back connected with God. And then four weeks later. Wow, wasn't that an awesome prayer meeting? I feel inspired. And then a month later, this kind of hurts my back. I'm getting too old for that. But I saw it's kind of warm in here. You guys are falling asleep. I figured maybe I could do a little show and wake you up. Pastor Brown's gone crazy. Boom. And then, oh, man, I just read a book of the Bible. Man, I'm so inspired. Man, I'm so full of faith. I'm ready to attack the devil with a toothpick and fight a, fight a bear like David and rip a lion in half with my hands. And, and, then, and then three weeks later, wow, wasn't that an awesome message? Man, I'm so inspired. He spoke to my heart. and Man, I feel so alive on the inside. That's not walking with God. That's bouncing around. But walking with God is like a consistent thing. Woo, it's like he's with me every day. Because I, I spend some time with him. Amen? I talk to him. And I'm, I want God has drove this into my spirit. And I want to pass it on to the church. That if you want to walk with God, if you want to walk after the spirit, it's not about like getting into some guru state to where you're just like zoned out and you only think spiritual thoughts. It's learning to walk with God on a consistent basis, on a daily basis. Spend some time in the presence of God. Spend some time in the Word of God. Come on now. It doesn't have to be two hours. It doesn't even have to be an hour. It could start out with 20 minutes of focusing your mind, saying, God, I want you in my life today. I want you to bless my work today. I want you to bless me and help me to use my tongue properly today. Help me in my relationships today. God, I'm praying for A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I believe you're going to work in my life today. Forgive me for my sins yesterday. Help me not to commit those same sins again. And then get in the Word of God. And you get in the Word of God and you begin to feel, have the mind of God impressed upon you. And then you're walking with God. Come on, somebody. And you find yourself in the middle of day, out of nowhere. Walking around and saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I praise you. Thank, and you're like, where did that come from? I didn't plan to pray. It just gets into your spirit. And you're walking with God. And you have a relationship with God. And you're in communion with God. And nothing's more important. Nothing gets your priority more than your relationship with God. And I'll be real honest with you right now. I'm going to be real open with you. The Lord chastised me a few months ago. Because my relationship with God wasn't my most important discipline and my most important priority in my life. And the Lord revealed to me that I was based on my conduct. Now, you could ask me a thousand times, and I'd always give you the answer that this is not the truth. But based on my conduct, this was the truth. Physical exercise was more important to me than godliness. Mm. You know why? Because I was diligent about not missing my physical exercise. But I was not so diligent about whether or not I missed my time with God. And God smote me. God, you, you listening to me? God smote me. And woke me up. 
And guess what? Here, here's, here's the order of the day now. Here's the priority. I don't care what I have going in the day. I don't care what's coming up in the day. I'm not going to go out and exercise. I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to the gym until I spend a significant amount of time with God. How about this? I'm not going to pick up a magazine. I'm not going to jump in and start reading emails. I'm not going to go through and read all of this stuff online until I spend some time in God's Word. Because today, I'm not walking after the flesh, but I'm walking after the Spirit. And, and when it's walking after the flesh, that doesn't mean necessarily just sinning. That means priorities that are contrary to Jesus Christ being first in your life. So it's about walking with God. Walking with God. And when you walk with God, you'll be spiritually minded. If you don't walk with God, if you try that hopping around stuff that I showed you, you're going to be carnally minded. You're going to experience a lot of condemnation. You're going to struggle with repeated temptation over and over and over again. You're going to live below your means. Come on now. <laughs> God's going to keep your feet to the fire. You're going to be still be going through some, through some struggles you shouldn't have to be in anymore. You're going to be taking the same test over and over and over and over again. Because God said, man, they've got to pass this test to make it, and they still aren't passing the test. And you're like, God, are you trying to beat up on me? No, I'm trying to get a point across to you. You're not going to thrive spiritually until you put this in your life. Until you get consistent in this, you're going to struggle the rest of your spiritual experience. And you can fake everybody else out, and everybody can think everything's okay. And listen to this. I think you could even make it to heaven, perhaps. But the reality is you're going to live so far beneath your means and you're not going to thrive and you're not going to be spiritually minded and there's going to be war and enmity at times with God because you're going to allow sin into your life that puts a barrier between you and God. You're going to allow attitudes into your life that puts a barrier between you and God. But if you're honest with God and spend time in prayer, honest, open prayer with God, He's going to start needling you and pointing out some problems with your attitude. Come on, somebody. And pointing out some issues with your conduct that you've been justified and putting up walls and protecting. But if you get open and honest, that's why a lot of people don't get open and honest with God because they know they're covering something up. But I'm telling you right now, you need to get it out because it stinks, it's rotten, and it's festering. And if you'll open it up to God, God will help you deal with it and you can learn to walk with God. Learn to walk with God. The third enemy of God is the devil. This is the final enmity in verse enemy, verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So the three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we can't be friends with any of these three. What is Satan's great sin? What is Satan's greatest sin? Pride. 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 Everybody say pride. Pride. So carnality, lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh. The world, worldliness, Satan, pride. It's all about pride. That was his greatest problem, and it's also one of his chief weapons that he uses against saints and against their Savior. God wants us humble. Satan wants us proud. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Like that, that's an easy equation. I mean, you don't even have to have a degree in algebra to figure that one out. God wants us humble. Satan wants us proud. What was Satan's temptation to Eve? You shall be as gods. Wanted her pride to be exalted. What is 1 Timothy 3.6? Did I give that to someone? 1 Timothy 3.6. What's it say, Brother Jeff? Lest being lifted up in pride, he fall in condemnation to the devil. It's talking about someone that's a leader or teacher not to use a novice. So the point is a brand new Christian must not be put into places of spiritual leadership because they can be lifted up with pride. Got to go through a few battles first, through a few struggles, through a few things first. Because God wants us to depend on his grace and recognize that it's only by God's grace that we're saved. While Satan wants us to depend on ourselves. Because guess what? Every time you get out of bed 30 minutes earlier and you find a place to pray... You know what you're saying when you bow your knee? Dude, I can't handle today by myself. I'm not strong enough to live for God. 
I'm not able to do it on my own. Jesus, I need you today. Satan wants you to believe you can do it on your own. Satan wants you to believe you can do it without prayer. Satan wants you to, do it, you, you to believe that you can do it because of your strengths, because of your background, because of your family tree, whatever it might be. wants you to trust in yourself and in the flesh. But God wants you to trust in Him. And the only way you can trust in Him is to humble yourself and recognize, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need Jesus every day. Need Him in the sunshine hour. Need Him when the storm clouds roll. Every day along life's way, I need Jesus. Anybody got that testimony? Satan enjoys inflating the ego and encouraging the believer to do it his own way. These three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, want to turn us away from God. But these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're leftovers. How many like to eat leftovers three days, four days later? How many like leftovers 10 years old? These things are leftovers from your old life of sin. Jesus delivered them from you, but they still attack you. They're still there. So how can we overcome them real simply? How can we be at real peace, peace with God, peace with ourselves, and ultimately at peace with others? These are the instructions that James gives us if we want to live in peace instead of being warfare. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. The first thing is to submit to God. It's a military term that means get into your proper rank. Hey, buck private, quit acting like a general. Realize who you are in the relationship with God. Unconditional surrender is the only way to complete victory. Remember a little leaven, a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump, and it causes it to puff up. The same is true with sin. It causes us to become prideful. But when you get the sin out, all of a sudden that pride is gone. And you realize, I need Jesus every day. Any area of your life that's kept back from God will be an area of continual battles. Ephesians 4.27, who has that? It says, don't give, yes, yeah, sister. Neither give place to the devil. Don't give the devil a foothill, a, a foothill, a foothold in your life. I don't know why I said foothill. Submitting is an act of your will. So first of all, submit to God. Number two, draw near to God. That's verse eight. Draw nigh to God. He'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double minded. How do you draw nigh to God? Have an all night prayer meeting? Shuck a buck like crazy? get in the right environment. No, you draw near to God by confessing your sins and asking for cleansing. Amen? Because then He will purify you. The word purify uh, here in, uh, it says purify your hearts. It means to make chaste or like a virgin. Turn your heart back into the heart of a virgin, which is the counter of a spiritual adulterer. The spiritually, uh, spiritual adultery can be adjusted by confessing our sins and asking for cleansing and being purified. Amen. Because nearness to God has to do with... It, it, let me just try to get this point real quick. Nearness is likeness. The more we are like God, the nearer we are to Him. The less we're like Him, the further we are to us. And when we cleanse ourselves, God draws near to us. When we deal with the sin that's keeping Him at a distance, God draws near to us. God's not going to share us with anybody else. He's not going to share us with our sin. But when we deal with the sin, God draws near to us. And uh, the Bible says a Christian that's double-minded can never really get close to God. So the uh, first step, submit to God. Number two, draw near to Him. Number three, humble yourself before God. Verses 9 and 10. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. Speak not evil. I'm sorry. Be afflicted. Verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep, lest your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He shall lift your up, you up. As we said, God hates the sin of pride and He will chasten the proud until He's humbled. Can you let that sink in for 20 seconds? He will chasten the proud until He's humbled. Mark my words. Mark my words. You deal with your pride or God will deal with your pride. That's why the Bible says humble yourself because it's a lot easier to humble yourself than to say, God, humble me. Let me give you a warning. Don't pray, God, humble me. Are you with me now? As God answers prayer. 
In the morning, God answers prayer at noon. Amen. So uh, he will chasten the proud believer until he is humbled. And uh, the mark of humility is facing the seriousness of sin and dealing with disobedience. So don't pray, O Lord, humble me. It's better to humble yourself. Confess your sins, weep over them, and turn from them. Psalms 34 and 18. Wow. The Lord is close to those that have a broken heart, and He saveth those that be of a contrite spirit. He draws close to Him. Draw nigh unto God, and He'll draw nigh unto you. How do I draw nigh unto Him? It's not like a special formula. It's not like a certain phrase you have to say. What you need to do is confess your sins, ask God to forgive you. Amen. And God will draw nigh unto you. Amen. If we do these things, God will draw near, He'll forgive us, and He'll cleanse us, and the war will cease. We can be at peace with God. How many are thankful to be at peace with God? Hallelujah. And we'll, we'll be, we won't be at war with God, so we won't be at war with ourselves. And ultimately, we will, uh, won't be at war with other people. Isaiah 32 and 17, the last verse. Wow, look at that. The work of righteousness shall be peace. Everybody say peace. Peace is the opposite of war. Pray for peace in the Mideast. Why? Because there's war in the Mideast. Peace, the work of righteousness shall be peace. Living for God, asking for forgiveness, trusting Jesus Christ produces peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance. That kind of sounds like pleasantness, doesn't it? Pleasant, quiet, assurance. No warfare, no struggle, no strife. Uh, and so the, the whole root of the problem, when there's problems, goes back to the root of war with God or enmity with God. And if we are at peace with God, then we're at peace with ourselves and we can be at peace with our brothers and sisters. Everybody said amen. The greatest place you can be the best place you can be is to be at peace with God. But how many knows how miserable it is and how uncomfortable it is to know that you're at enmity with God, that you're in disagreement with God's law and God's purpose? Uh, hallelujah. Why don't we stand to our feet right now and let's thank the Lord for his word. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for your presence. Uh, thank you for your anointing. Thank you for the power of your spirit, Lord Jesus. Uh, thank you, Lord God, that you've been so good to me, Jesus. Uh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, uh, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus.